Well, folks, I have, uh, this is the third week in a row, well, yeah, almost in a row, <laughs> um, God had put it on my heart that I needed to talk about relationships, and I shared with this, shared with you, with, shared this with you a couple weeks back, that I wasn't sure but what God was giving me one particular sermon to preach on any one particular Sunday, but no, indeed, he wanted me to preach three different Sundays on relationships. And so this Sunday, I'm going to be talking mainly about forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a very familiar component in our Christian faith. I mean, if there wasn't forgiveness, none of us would be able to say we had a relationship with God. Because the scriptures very clearly tell us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it also says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, without forgiveness for our sins, we would not have relationship with God. Without relationship with God, we would never have hope of eternal life. And literally, we would be miserable, horrible people. And so, every single one of you, if you are a Christian, have at least at one time in your life experienced forgiveness being presented or granted to you. Now, as I just said, God has forgiven us for all of our sins. We've extended forgiveness to people. It is so familiar to us that it's almost a taken-for-granted type thing. I can, I, I, I can remember when my kids were little, and I can remember when working with children, it would be like, please forgive me, please forgive me, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And you're like, okay, fine, 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 fine. I forgive you, just go away, you're bothering me. But the reality is, forgiveness is not just a little glib throwaway thing. Forgiveness is a big thing. I mean, if, if I were to ask you to define forgiveness, now don't say anything yet, think about it. If I were to ask you to define forgiveness, what would you say? What is involved in the process of forgiveness? Go. I can't hear you, Meg, I'm sorry. If you haven't asked God for forgiveness, how can you? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Releasing them from your hook and and allowing them onto God's. Releasing someone off of your hook and allowing them to go onto God's hook. That sounds mean. <laughs> Letting go of anger and resentment. Okay. Choosing to not remind someone of their past failings or ways that they've harmed you. Okay. Well, to receive forgiveness, and Maggie started this, to receive forgiveness, we must extend forgiveness. Let me, let me bring up a, a slide here that it might help a little bit. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And I'm reading this particular uh, out of the New Revised Standard Version. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he wrote, he said, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, the very next, well, two verses away, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, 
Jesus then says, and this is what Maggie was quoting, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So Matthew 16 says, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, God forgive us. This is part of the Lord's Prayer. And then... Jesus then, later on, after the prayer part, after he was teaching the prayer, he had a teaching that he said, if you don't forgive people who have harmed you, how can you hope to seek forgiveness from God? In effect, forgiveness earns forgiveness. Would you agree with that statement? Forgiveness earns forgiveness. Because if you don't pay out forgiveness... You can't hope to receive forgiveness in your own life. Now, that's one thing. Forgiveness must be extended in order to receive it. There's this earning. There's another thing about forgiveness. Just the common, everyday forgiveness. It's ongoing. It literally is never-ending, and it's a requirement for Christians. So, let me show you the, the verse. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 22 says, Peter came to the Lord and said, if, if any member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said, not seven times. I tell you, seven, excuse me, 77 times. And that, that one... And it has a parallel scripture in Luke. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 to 4 says, Jesus talking again, Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. So there's this idea here that forgiveness is required, it is ongoing, forgiveness begets forgiveness, but you don't have those scriptures open in front of you, some of you may, but most of you don't. In both the Matthew 18 and the Luke chapter, it's talking about a fellow Christian. I never caught that before I started doing this sermon. As I was reading this week, that kind of jumped out at me. I don't have to forgive these heathen people. I just got to forgive brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's not what it's saying. But what it is saying in both of these cases is that if a fellow Christian has harmed you in some way and comes and repents, and that's what's, what, what was cool about the Luke one, it says, if they show repentance, you must forgive. In other words, you're harmed, they come to you and they acknowledge, confess, repent, you have no choice. You can't hold it over them. It's like, like Elsie said, it's letting them off the hook. But this is everyday standard, plain vanilla Christian forgiveness. I was in a Bible study just, uh, well, it wasn't a Bible study, it was a support group study, a, a, a meeting for leaders of support groups. You see, I, I've just recently completed training for 
uh, leading what's called grace-filled support groups. And what this is, is a support group for people who have suffered some form of loss. It could be you had a death, it could be you had a divorce, it could be that you um, suffered a failure in your business, it could be you lost your business, it could be that your house burned down, it could be you know you had an amputation. It doesn't necessarily be any particular type of loss, but the goal being that we would gather together people who have been struggling with loss and get together just to talk and support each other. And I've been trained to be a leader of a group like that. And so I meet monthly with fellow leaders to talk about where we're at in our process of starting our groups and any challenges we're facing. Well, back in February, I was in a meeting like this, and this one leader was talking, and she shared some struggles she was going through and some things that were happening, and the leader of our group said to her, that is a real Hosea kind of forgiveness. I had never heard that term my whole life. That's a real Hosea kind of forgiveness. And so I quickly opened up my iPad and typed in to my sermon schedule on this date, preach about a Hosea kind of forgiveness. And then I put it aside until this week when I had to spend all week thinking about a Hosea kind of forgiveness. Now, I'm not going to ask you to speak out. But I do want you to think for just a second. What do you think? Don't say it out loud, because we're going to talk about it all morning. What do you think is a Hosea kind of forgiveness? Is it any different from regular, plain, vanilla Christian forgiveness? Are there different types of forgivenesses? Or is it all the same? And I want to talk to you about it. So, let's first turn, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hosea. And if that's not one that you regularly read, let me tell you, it's after Psalms. It's after um, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Then you'll get to Daniel. As soon as you get to Daniel, the very next one is Hosea. And... It's 14 chapters long, so you shouldn't skip over it. It's not a page or two. It'll be three or four pages. So right after Daniel, you'll find Hosea. And we're going to be looking at the first three chapters. So just keep your finger there, because we're not going to be jumping around this morning. We're going to pretty much stay right here in Hosea. Now, I want to talk to us about this very first thing that I see in Hosea. Chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. And what I call this is a marriage made in heaven. This is a marriage that God himself ordained and called forth. Read with me. I'll read it out loud. You follow along. Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now see, I've got Gomer in two different services. This is great. Those of you who were here last week, the reference to Gomer pile. But anyway, uh, see I told you I thought it might have been two different, one sermon, but anyway. Okay, but this is an interesting command of God. 
Go get yourself a wife who's not going to be faithful to you. Marriage made in heaven. Now, as I studied this, I found out that scholars are unsure from the text of this book whether or not Gomer was sleeping around prior to the marriage or if she began to have extramarital affairs after the first child was born. See, there some think that she was a woman of ill repute, a prostitute, and that he went and picked out a prostitute and married her. Well, quite honestly, that would have violated a lot of laws in the Mosaic world, in the, in the, um, the Jewish world. So it's not likely that that was the case. It's possible, but it's not likely. However, by the time the second child was born, Gomer had indeed become unfaithful to Hosea. And you know how I know? Look at the names. Pity the children who are born to prophets. Okay? I mean, names have meanings, folks. I mean, okay, for example, Robert, me. Famed, bright, shining. That's me. <laughs> Renee. We have two Renees in our church. Renee means reborn. Dakota, friend, friendly, ally. Elsie, my God is bountiful or a God of plenty. Ruth, companion, friend, vision of beauty. Now, here in our Western culture, we don't focus on the meanings of names in our day-to-day -day business. I mean, when we deal with each other, we just call each other by a name, and it's really not that big, it's just a name. But in the ancient world, the Israelites especially, it was a very big deal what you were named. And it often seems that, unfortunately, the prophets, the children of the prophets, bear the, bore the brunt of a prophetic name that their parent felt impressed of the Lord to put on them, and they had to carry it their whole life. Now, look at the name of Hosea's three kids. Jezreel. God sows. That's a nice one. Sounds good. But if you read Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, it says, And the Lord said to Hosea, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I'm going to punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, what this is talking about is Jezreel was a valley. It was a location in northern Israel. And Jehu was a king who came and cleaned house. And it was ordained of God. God had said to Jehu, if you look back and read it, it says, God said, go clean house. It was through Elijah the prophet. And he said, you go clean house. There was Ahab and there's Jezebel. They need to be out of there. And there's all these others. They need to be out of there. Well, Jehu went a little bit crazy. And he did things that were inappropriate. And he literally tricked people into killing people to clean house. And then he turned around and killed the ones that killed the people. So he did not such good stuff, even though he was following the law of what the Lord told him to do, but he went too far in his exuberance, and the end result was, God declared Jehu a problem, and it needed to be taken care of. And God literally says, verse 1 through verse 4, I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of northern Israel. I'm, I'm done with it. It's just going to be Judah. 
as a result of Jehu. So when Jezreel's walking around as a little kid, he's a constant reminder to all of the nation where he lives, God has declared, I'm going to get all of you. That's a good thing to carry around with you all day. Remember people, God's gotcha. Look at my name. Now, here's the next one. This one is really sad. This is the little girl of the family. Two boys and a girl. Lo rumaha, not pitied. No love, no mercy. Look at one through, I mean, chapter one, verse six through seven. Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter, and then the Lord said to him, name to, jo, to Hosea, name her Lo Ruhama, for I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel or forgive them. And I will have pity on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. But I will not save them by sword or by bow or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So God is going to allow a remnant of the nation to survive. But he's basically forsaking two-thirds of the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. And this little girl walks around all the time going, I'm... No love. Hi. My, I'm no pity. Can you imagine how sad that would be? This is the last one. Lo Ami. Not my people. Hosea 1.8 When Gomer had weaned Lo Ruhama, she conceived and bore a son, and then the Lord said, Name him Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. What an incredibly horrible, horrible moniker. Do you think that she's doing, he's doing that because of her? Yeah. See, Gomer broke her marriage covenant with Hosea. The text doesn't give us a full understanding. I mean, if you sit there and read and read and read and read, you really aren't going to see specifically what I'm about to say, because even scholars are kind of divided on this, because it's not specifically in the scriptures, so we, we have to kind of guess at certain things. The text doesn't tell us about the legitimacy of the births of Lo Ruama and Lo Ami. We know for a fact, verse one three, I mean chapter one, verse three tells us, Gomer became pregnant with Jezreel, closely following the wedding to Hosea, and it's probable that she conceived during their honeymoon. Okay, so there's no question that Jezreel is is Hosea's son. But Hosea chapter 1 verse 6 and 8 speak of the conception of each of the children, but it doesn't say a thing about who the father is. And it is commonly thought that Hosea is not the father of Lo-Ruhamah and Lo-Ami. And hence, the name ain't got no love, and this ain't my people. That's a pretty sad thing. A statement from your father. You know, the, 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 the Lion King thing? Raising the child up. This is my son! This is my son and he shall be called! You know? That's the one I don't have any love for. And that's not mine. Horrible. Horrible. Hosea chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, clearly speak of Gomer's lover's plural. You see, Homer, excuse me, Homer, Hosea had every right to divorce Gomer. Every right. And he was under no obligation to bring her back. Um, in Deuteronomy, 
chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, which I'm not going to have up on the screen or anything. Just mark it down if you're taking notes. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. This is part of the Mosaic law, part of the Levitical law. It says, if a man marries a woman, and then it happens that he no longer likes her because he has found something wrong with her. Now, this particular scripture could talk about she burned the chicken. So, but it also means that she slept with somebody else. So, so anything that he finds that's wrong with her, okay, he can give her divorce papers. Put them in her hand and send her off. After she leaves, if she becomes another man's wife, then she also comes to hate her. I mean, then he also comes to hate her. This second husband then gives her divorce papers, puts them in her hand and sends her off. And if he should die, then, or if he should die, then the first husband who divorced her can't marry her again. This is the law of Moses. She has made herself ritually unclean to him and her remarriage would be an abomination in the presence of God. It would defile the land with sin. This land that God, your God, is giving you as an inheritance. So what the Mosaic law said was, yeah, you can divorce, but if you divorce a person, that's the last time you ever have them as a, as a spouse. Unless they don't get married to anybody else and then you have a change of heart and you want to go back. That's the only time you could take him back as a spouse. If they ever have another intimate relationship with another human being, they're done for you. You are not allowed to have it because it will be a, an abomination in the sight of God. So, we don't know whether Hosea divorced Gomer or whether or not she just left him. But we do know that the situation that Hosea is in, in chapter 3, is a very tenuous situation when it comes to the culture, when it comes to human relationships, when it just comes to being a man, period. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Hosea. Now, I'm reading this particular section out of the amplified version, so it'll have a few extra words in it than you would normally have in yours. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Then said the Lord to me, Go again, love the same woman, Gomer, who is beloved of a paramour, and a paramour is an extramarital lover, okay? Who is beloved of a paramour and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, used in sacrificial feasts in idol worship. So I bought her for 15 pieces of silver and a homer and a half of barley, the price of a slave. And I said to her, You shall be betrothed to me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, and you shall not belong to another man. So will I also be to you, unless you have proved your loyalty to me, and our marital relations may, marital relations may be resumed. Now, as I said, we have no evidence from the text whether or not Hosea had issued Gomer this certificate of divorce. But what we do know is that Gomer was not currently living with Hosea. She was either cohabiting with her latest lover, or, very possibly, she was bound to a pimp. In order for Hosea to get Gomer back, he literally had to buy her freedom from the current lover. That, to me, sounds like she was probably a pimp. I mean, she was probably being pimped. 
that she had already fallen so far that she was now a prostitute, and there was somebody who owned her, if you will. Because when he said he spent that much money, 15 shekels plus the amount it would cost him for the barley, 30, in the word of God it says, if an ox or a bull gores one of your servants and kills them, you owe the owner of the servant or the slave 30 shekels of, of silver. That's the price for the life of a slave. And that's what's, what Hosea is referring to here. He said, it cost me 30 shekels of silver to get my wife back. I literally had to pay as if she was a slave. Which is a hint to us that she was probably being acting as a prostitute and under the ownership, if you will, of a pimp. Hosea chapter 3, verse 2. So I bought her for 15 pieces of silver. What would you expect to happen the night that they get home? <laughs> I see your hands. <laughs> I wrote in my notes, probably a huge fight. I would expect, this is me thinking, I mean, you can have your own expectations, but my, my thinking, I, I can see Hosea start off by hotly asking her what she thought she was doing running around like that. And she would get indignant and then speak harshly back to Hosea, and they'd end up in this huge argument, and then Gomer would slam the bedroom door and fling herself across the bed and just weep and weep and weep. And Hosea would storm out of the house and go to the local bar and get drunk and complain to his buddies about his ungrateful wife. That's what I would expect. I mean, this is a broken relationship, people. How in the world are they going to get back together again? But look what actually transpires between Hosea, this harmed man, and Gomer, this woman who walked out on her family. Hosea chapter 3, verse 3, Amplified Again version says, I said to her, you shall be betrothed to me for many days. You shall not play the harlot and you shall not belong to another man. So will I also be to you until you have proved your loyalty to me and our marital relations can be resumed. The last part of verse 3, if you're reading any scholars and trying to translate this, it's very difficult for, for scholars to translate it. And your different versions will say different things. For example, um, um, whoops. NIV says, I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I'll behave the same way toward you. In other words, good for, what's good for the sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander, will both be celibate. Will both be, will both be sexually pure for this period of time. That's what the NIV says. King James says, Thou shalt abide with me for me many days, and thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man, and so will I also be for thee. NIV, just in old words. I mean, it's basically the same thing. You're not going to be a prostitute, I won't be a prostitute, we won't be sexually promiscuous, we'll just see how things go. New Revised Standard Version says, And I said to her, You must remain as mine for many days. No one else. Mine. You shall not play the whore. You shall not have intercourse with another man, nor I with you. 
In other words, he says, in New Revised Standard Version says, that they're calling for a time of celibacy within their marriage relationship. New American Standard says, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot. You shall not have a man. So I will also be toward you. Pretty much the same thing as the New Revised Standard Version. But let's go back to this Amplified Version. This is the reason I chose this one. I said to her, You shall be betrothed to me for many days. You shall not play the harlot. You shall not belong to another man. So will I also be to you until you have proved your loyalty to me and our marital relations can be resumed. Marital relations being intimate sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife. You see what's happening behind these closed doors as Hosea is reestablishing the relationship, this covenantal relationship with his wife, Gomer? In effect, he is wooing her all over again. He has set aside the fact that she has betrayed him in the worst possible way. He is ignoring the fact that she has shown no sign of admission of guilt. She has not expressed regret over her actions. She has not asked for or tried to display repentance. She, he is simply offering her Unconditional forgiveness. It is an act of selfless love. Now, what do you think Gomer's response is going to be? So we're not given that in the word. We're not told what's going to come up next. I mean, the end is literally left up for conjecture. So what do you think happened? Does Gomer respond favorably to Hosea's offer of forgiveness and love? Do they end up in matrimonial bliss? Are their children finally provided with a stable home life with a mom and a dad who are in love with each other and they respect and care for each other? We don't know. You see, the ball literally ends up in Gomer's court. How she responds to Hosea's offer will ultimately determine the level of intimacy they end up with. Hosea has a tremendous job ahead of himself. In in his job is to set an environment in which Gomer can feel safe enough in his love and in his forgiveness so that she can then respond in kind. Can you, can you imagine or, or, or hear in, in Hosea's words to her, I'm not interested in you for sex. Too many men have used you for that. That's not what this is about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withhold my right as your husband to have sex with you for as long as it takes until we can be intimate and it's not harmful to you. I am willing to lay aside all of the pain that you've caused me. I'm willing to forget the fact that two of the three kids in this house aren't even mine. As a matter of fact, and if you look in the the word, and I unfortunately forgot to put it in my notes, he changes the girl's name and the boy's name. He changes their name to one who is loved. 
and one who is my people. That's the depth of Hosea's unconditional forgiveness to this woman who brazenly used every ounce of him. She humiliated him in this culture. Everyone knew that his wife was out sleeping around with everyone else. Some of them had even done it and paid for the privilege. And he had every right to cast her out. He had every right to never have another thing to do with her. And he would have been right in God's eyes for doing so. The problem is, in chapter 3, God doesn't give him that right. God says, I demand from you that you express a, a Hosea kind of forgiveness. One where she's not asking for your forgiveness. She's not even accepting her own responsibilities for the things she's done. You reach out, draw her to you, woo her back, re-win her love, and prove that you're safe for her. And then ultimately, when she's ready, you guys can have the intimate love relationship that you should have had from the very beginning. That's what a Hosea kind of forgiveness is. It's not normal, plain vanilla, every day. It is powerful. It does not respond because someone repented. It is the kind of forgiveness that offers acceptance and forgiveness regardless of the state of the relationship. Hear that. It offers forgiveness regardless of the state of the relationship between the one offended and the offender. The Hosea kind of forgiveness is only possible through the power of God flowing through the Hosea. It's not something that a human being is going to be able to do in and of themselves. Our nature doesn't do that. But when the Holy Spirit of God comes in and empowers you, you have the ability to offer that unconditional, selfless forgiveness. And the interesting thing is, that's the kind of forgiveness God offers to every single one of you. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 to 20 said, I will betroth you to me forever. This is God talking to his people. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will even betroth you to me in stability and in faithfulness. And you shall know, you shall recognize, you shall be acquainted with, appreciate, give heed to, and cherish me, your Lord. Like Gomer, when God offers to us unconditional love and forgiveness, the ball ends up in our court. How we respond to God's offer will ultimately determine the level of intimacy we end up with, with God. And I will tell you one other thing and then I'm done. You can't expect to be forgiven unless you're willing to offer forgiveness 
And if the other one never asks for it, and that's your rule about forgiveness, then you're stuck. I want you to spend some time praying at the end of our service and asking God, is there someone in my life that I'm keeping on the hook? Is there someone in my life that has caused me so much harm or harmed someone that I love and I'm not willing to offer a Hosea kind of forgiveness because I'm just too angry? You need to get that settled. If you are being called of God to offer a Hosea kind of forgiveness to somebody, you're going to have to get on your face before him and ask him to give you that kind of love, that kind of selflessness, that kind of holy, righteous living. Because otherwise it ain't going to work. So I want you to spend some time praying. For those of you who spend time meditating, obviously we're not having a community group tonight. There's your question for the rest of the week. But uh, let's pray.